In this episode of the PitCon podcast, we speak to Professor Lewis Colon about the power of separation science to prepare chromatographic materials. I am Luis Colon. I am the um, uh, A. Conger Goodyear Professor in the Department of Chemistry at the State University of New York. I'm also the, a distinguished professor of the State University of New York at Buffalo. And I also hold a uh, position as an Associate Dean in the School of um, uh, College of Art and Sciences. Uh, my um, research activities involve the um, uh, study of uh, chromatographic materials for chemical analysis. Uh, and I have a research group of about six students now. Uh, I say about because one is about to graduate, uh, and then it will become five. And I, uh, just two months ago, I graduated my 35th uh, PhD uh, student from, from, from my group. So and how did you become involved with the chromatography field? Ah, uh, boy, that goes back a few years. Actually, um, uh, my very first chromatographic experiment, uh, now in retrospect, I think it was in, in high school in uh, bio biology class or something like that, I think it was, where basically we did some uh, chromato paper chromatography. Uh, it wasn't until I went to college that I was exposed more to HPLC or gas chromatography. Uh, but it was, what I would say superficially, was just in the class. But when I finished my bachelor's degree, I went to the pharmaceutical industry where I actually became a practitioner of uh, HPLC. Uh, but after a few years, I went to graduate school and it was there where I uh, studied uh, chromatographic detection system for HPLC. And uh, after that, uh, of course, I continued doing capillary electrophoresis. And uh, when I had my uh, own research group, have continue the work in separation science, uh, uh, developing methodology for analytical chemistry, or uh, developing materials for uh, uh, chromatographic separation for HPLC and for uh, electrochromatography and for uh, gas chromatography. Mm. And from your experience, what have you found to be like some of the challenges of um, analyzing complex um, molecules such as in pharmaceutical or environmental samples? So um, challenges come and they go, and then other challenges appear, which is uh, uh, make our life a little uh, more interesting. Uh, but through the years, what I have seen is that uh, um, complex samples are difficult to separate. Uh, there are uh, things like matrix effects, for example, uh, that some of the, the uh, uh, biological samples are in, in these biofluids that contain uh, literally uh, an enormous amount of compounds that we need to, to, se to separate or we need to purify, and uh, that becomes very challenging. So. Uh, one of the major challenges, again, is to remove those matrices that are there that we don't want. Uh, there are other challenges have been uh, identifying impurities that are such a low level that are very difficult to, to detect, uh, but those, we have been overcoming those, and, and, and there are other things that continue. Uh, I think uh, nowadays, one of the major challenges, I think it is that we have to have analysis uh, in a very short period of time with a relatively less amount of uh, funding, and uh, they have to be quick. So th I think that's one of the major challenges, although they are, they are being addressed by uh, many, many individuals in the, in the field. That definitely is a very perfect way to describe them. So you've mentioned a technique, uh, HPLC. What is this technique, and how would you define it? HPLC is a uh, separation technique, a chromatographic technique, that basically 
uses a chromatographic column. This is a two-pack with very small quantities of uh, material and adsorbent that basically will retain compounds there, and they are uh, retained selectively depending on the compound and the and the composition of the of the uh, material that is in the column. And you have an, uh, a solution that basically brings the sample there and then keep washing the column until the compounds are eluded out of the column and you detect them. Uh, I think that is in contrast to gas chromatography, for example, where the, uh, it's similar in the sense that it's chromatography, but now it's in the gas phase, the, what we call the mobile phase that takes the, uh, the sample to the column and then the, uh, washes it out until the compounds are separated. In the gas chromatography, it's, it's a gas. In liquid chromatography, it's a liquid. And in supercritical fluid chromatography, it's a supercritical fluid. And there are uh, differences between uh, the three of them. The gas chromatography is more amenable to compounds that are volatile. Liquid chromatography can handle compounds that are, are not uh, volatile, and people are, have used uh, that. Uh, supercritical fluid chromatography, on the other hand, is a technique that uses a supercritical fluid. That's a fluid that is somewhere in between liquid chromatography and gas chromatography, and that provides some advantages uh, because it's, it, it, one can control some of the characteristics that, that really helps separate uh, some, some of the compounds. Uh, and the, the, the good thing about the supercritical fluid chromatography is that it is uh, a more benign for the environment, meaning that it uses, for example, CO2 that is in the environment. We've collected some in cylinders, and then we use it to do the separations uh, using CO2 at uh, supercritical conditions. We modify it with some uh, additive alcohols, uh, but in general it's CO2, and then we return that to the environment again. So it's basically recycling that, and in that sense is uh, uh, more environmentally uh, friendly. And more uh, uh, is that uh, it gives us fast separations. And that is really helping separating uh, things in, in, in a faster way. Now, that's quite an interesting technique. So, um, kind of talking more about your other activities, could you explain what photochromism is? So, that is a process by which um, a particular molecule uh, goes a, a transformation. Basically, uh, most likely, it's an isomeration. So, uh, a, a molecule, a photochromic molecule, is that that will uh, absorb light, and then uh, in that process changes its conformation, becomes something else, and now it becomes a, a molecule that now has a color, for example. Uh, a very uh, good example of that are the transition lenses that we have uh, for, for solar uh, protection, I guess, and for protection from the sun. So if we are inside, uh, we have basically a transparent glass. But if you go outside, the UV light that is in the sun hits the glass and then it changes color. So that is a photochromic uh, uh, compound that is there. And that color becomes now a filter in addition to that. So now the UV light doesn't penetrate and, and bother our eyes. Oh, that's, I didn't know that. <laughs> that's quite cool. Um, and why are these photochromic compounds like, you have to forgive me, <laughs> diaralethines or DAE, which have photoswitchable isomers, why are they so interesting and why are they so exciting to research? So th these are very unique compounds. Uh, so what happens with these photochromic compounds is that they go transformation back and forth. It's like a switch. So shine light, uh, convert to something, take the light out or put a different light and then switch back. So it goes back and forth. And most of those, uh, most of the applications nowadays that we have are in the, li in the liquid phase, meaning that these materials are in solution. Now the, the uh, diarrheal ether, the, the, what is very interesting about them is that they tend to be uh, very stable uh, they can uh, which, uh, uh, withstand more of the switching back and forth. 
And something that is very unique is that they do not necessarily need to be in a, a liquid phase or they don't need to be in, in a matrix to switch colors. So they by themselves can be uh, as a crystal and they can uh, uh, colors, uh, change color by shining light. So just imagine now we have something, uh, a crystal that now we can put in, a, uh, make a device, for example, that we shine light and we change uh, something about it. And are there any um, challenges associated with isolating these, these compounds? Yes. Uh, the compounds, because they can go this transition, okay, uh, they are made and then uh, they are, for example, in the um, uh, uh, photochemical uh, state that, that they are active. Uh, but they are active, but the, 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 what happens with them is that they also have what is called rotamers. So they have this compound, they have these little arms, and they are rotating all the time. And to convert from one to another, they have to be in a particular set. So that's not straightforward. So you shine light in one of these compounds and it gives you color, but there is a portion of the compound, of, of set of compound that did not change because it was in the wrong conformation. So basically you have a mixture when you do this in the liquid phase. Uh, so when you try to make a crystal, for example, uh, and you start with that, you don't know what you have. So that's why sometimes it's not that effective when you make the crystal because you don't have a pure material. You have a mixture of them. And on top of that, there is something that is called fatigue. Uh, that it goes switching quite a bit, uh, and then they, it takes a conformation that doesn't change, it's not active anymore. Uh, so that's also a, a, a challenge. So the question is, how can we uh, obtain each one of them? And, um, and, and the main idea is, if you have a compound that is locked in place, let's say the shine light, it took a particular conformation, can you use that now to make a crystal? And now you locked it there, and now you can go back and forth. Uh, but the, the uh, the problem has been that it's difficult to separate them and to make quantities that are significant that one can do, do those. And that's where we uh, have been working in the field so that we can separate them and then collect the sample that we are interested and then use, uh, use that sample. Not quite, it could be uh, difficult because they're isomers. So they're very, very similar in nature. So you need to have the right condition to separate them and then to go and, and collect the quantities that uh, are required. And uh, could you discuss some of the uh, chromatography techniques that could be used to, to analyze them? So one can use liquid chromatography. We have used that uh, and, and we can separate them without uh, much of a problem. Uh, uh, we have done it anyways. Uh, what people have not done in the past is use a sophistication of HPLC uh, with some of the, uh, uh, let's say, we online, we also do a spectroscopy. Basically, we have a detection system that allows us to take the spectrum of the compounds that goes by, so that gives us a characterization. Uh, and, and then trying to isolate that on the, for chromatographic purposes, uh, what one can do is uh, the same chromatography, but instead of being in a small column, now we use a large column, and with that large column, now we go and collect large quantities. Uh, but there is a, um, uh, and we have Again, performed that, that was the first isolation that we did. But the, 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 the main problem with that is that when you go to large quantities, now you have a lot of solvent. Now you are not as friendly to the environment, so you're using what is called acetonitrile, and you don't want to use a lot of it. In analytical uh, quantities, one can dispose easier, but when we're talking about a separation, let's say take 30 minutes, and now you're using a, a flow rate of 20 milliliters per minute, uh, now we're talking about gallons or, or uh, liters of, of this material that is, that is uh, produced that then is a waste. So what we have done is switch to supercritical free chromatography because uh, again, it doesn't use such a solvent and that allows us to do faster separation and be more um, uh, 
uh, friendly to the environment uh, in terms of, and not wasting so, so much so much solvent. No, it sounds like quite an interesting technique to use for this application. Um, so, kind of looking more to um, the future of this field, are there any trends in chromatography and the broader separation sciences that you are currently monitoring or looking forward to seeing? Oh boy, there are many things. Challenges always come, as I said, and they go. Uh, the, the chromatography in general is very useful for the, um, a chemical analysis. Things that are um, uh, the, the challenge of separating more complex samples always is there uh, because we solve one problem today, but then another one comes. Uh, for example, the um, uh, separation of, of compounds that are in the uh, metabolomics, for example, is a, a field that, that requires more and more powerful uh, separation techniques. So I see a trend uh, uh, moving towards this, uh, using two-dimensional chromatography, where you use two chromatographic um, uh, techniques that are complementary to each other, basically they are orthogonal to each other, so that allows you to do uh, two uh, these separations. Uh, I, I also see the, the trend of doing faster separations, and I think that is something that will continue, trying to miniaturize the, um, the separation system, because traditionally, at the analytical level, what is used is, is a column that you um, uh, do chromatography running at one milliliter per minute, for example. Uh, I think we can do better. Uh, so if we move to capillary columns, we reduce the flow rate. If we use, um, uh, for example, supercritical fluid, we remove also solvent. Uh, I think there is more emphasis now in trying to create more sustainable uh, ways to do chromatography. Uh, and, and I think we know how to do it, but I don't think that people really had the, um, the motivation to do it. And I think we have become more conscientious about the environment. And, and I think uh, that's a trend that I, I, I can foresee continuing. And another one uh, is, is the, um, a trend towards uh, having personalized medicine. And that separation sciences really play a big role there. And maybe we would like to have something you stick it in and, and get the color and give, tell you something, but it's not quite as simple as that. So um, I think now using, for example, sample uh, microchips, I use separation in a very small uh, device. So you, I, I can envision in the future having go to the physician's office and they have one of these devices and you perhaps put a, a drop of blood and then things get separated and then there's a system that can detect what they are there and so on and so forth. So those are areas that I think they're going to continue. And I think, uh, again, separation side will play a role there. No, definitely. I think um, personalized medicine is such a big topic and it's almost like people forget that separation science is the foundation to how the technology is, is going to work. Um, so first of all, congratulations on being the recipient of the Dalna Gara Award. Um, how does it feel to win this award? Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. Um, you know, it, it gives me a sense of satisfaction. Uh, um, because uh, uh, the work that my students have done and my collaborators uh, that we have done in, in my laboratory uh, uh, is being recognized. And I think that's, that's, that's a sense of, of, of accomplishment. I think, I think it's, it's, um, it's, it's also a sense that uh, the work is important. So it's recognized because people have, have uh, uh, recognized that there is value in it. And it is interesting, I was talking to colleagues recently uh, here at the meeting, that um, uh, we do some things, it's exciting, and we move forward, and then we go to another project and another project, and it is not until five, ten years later that you realize that that has been picked up somehow. 
and people are using some of the technology may, may have improved, but, but the, the principle is the same. And I think it's a sense of uh, satisfaction for me and for, for my students because they, they feel that they have contributed somehow to the field. And um, building more on the kind of this topic about face-to-face -face meetings, and we spoke a little bit about the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic has had on events like PitCon. Why is it so important for these events to continue to take place and for academics and industry professionals to actually encourage each other to attend these events? I think uh, the, the reason for that is that human touch, human contact, you can't replace that. And it's not the same when you are in front of a screen. So having these meetings in person is, is completely different. Uh, people may argue, well, but the science is the same. You can really communicate that. Yes, but it is not so uh, uh, dry and so cold. I mean, there is a human aspect to it. And I think you can only find that when you meet in person. There's no way around that. Something that Pittsburgh Conference and other conferences have is have instrumentation and they have uh, certain um, uh, uh, lectures, uh, plenary lectures that are very unique. Uh, but the, I, I know it's expensive for, for companies to come and do exhibitions uh, to meetings like this. However, I think it has something, um, uh, again, being here and see the new instrument and touch it. And, and, and that, that gives a sense of uh, that is different and ask questions to the person that is trying to uh, um, promote the, the particular uh, uh, instrument. So I think there is a lot of value into that. And I hope that that continues. Every month we will be sharing an exclusive interview with some of PitCon's four leaders. Remember to leave a review, share the episode and follow the PitCon podcast to hear first hand when new episodes are out.